Let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel. We're going to look at chapter 2 this evening. In the very first chapter that we looked at last week, we saw that um, there was a gentleman named Elkanah who had two wives. The one was named Hannah, and the other one was Penina, and Hannah was barren. She couldn't have children, but yet Penina was very uh, fertile. <laughs> she was able to have children, and, but it says that Elkanah really loved Hannah. You know, it kind of reminds me of uh, Isaac with, uh, or I'm sorry, with Jacob with Rachel and Leah. Or um, Leah, yeah, I think that's right. I get the, I, sometimes I still get uh, the brothers confused. But um, sort of like the thing with Rachel and Leah, you know, uh, Jacob loved Rachel, but Leah was the first to have kids, you know. And so a similar situation here, and we find that uh, Penina, who was Elkanah's other wife, and the Lord never really sanctioned, um, he, he allowed it to happen, but it wasn't something that God uh, condoned. He never condoned polygamy, where you have more than one wife. It was never a good idea. And we see in every instance in the Bible, in Jacob's life and also in Elkanah's life, we see whenever there is one man and two women, or one man and several women, uh, the Bible doesn't record having you know, one woman with several men, uh, but there's always a problem. And I think there's a reason for that, because Jesus said from the very beginning it was so that he created man and woman, and they too shall become one flesh. These two, man and female, male and female, they come together, they become one flesh. He doesn't say one man and three women, one man and a thousand women, as in Solomon's case, but one man, one woman, and they too shall become one flesh. And whenever you have anything other than what God has initially designed, you run into troubles very quickly. So this was the case with Elkanah because Penina was always chiding Hannah, just on her case all the time about her infertility. And have you ever had an adversary like that? <coughs> Excuse me. You know, they knew something, maybe a, fr a, fr a friend or a family member, just knowing something about you and just... It's like salt on a wound. It was sort of like lemon juice on a paper cut. Every time you got together, they just they couldn't resist just dropping a little lemon juice on that paper cut and causing so much pain. And that was the relationship that Hannah and Penina had. Penina was her accuser, and it hurt her severely. And so they go up to Shiloh where the, the tabernacle was, and there is Eli the priest and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And Hannah makes a vow to the Lord. The Bible says that she didn't have to make a vow, but she wanted a child so bad because she knew that her husband Elkanah loved her, but yet his other wife, Penina, was very fruitful and, and as, a, as a result of that, just rubbing it in her nose. And, and yet she knew that Elkanah really loved her, but she was impotent in a sense. She, didn't, she couldn't bear children for him, the thing that every husband would, would desire, to have an heir. So they go up to the tabernacle in Shiloh and... Hannah makes this vow, and she basically says, Lord, if you will give me a child, then I will give him back to you all the days of his life. You just give me a child. So, you know, and you think about the love that she had for Elkanah. I just want a child. You know, there's nothing more precious and wonderful uh, a woman's or a man's, but especially a woman's desire to have children. When that overcomes a woman, it is a really, it's a, it's, it's a God-given desire, and it's a good thing. 
And here she is with that desire, but no way to produce a child. And so God hears her prayer. Eli, seeing her pray just with her mouth, he assumes that she's drunk. But she's in bitterness of soul. She's heartbroken. And then finally, when she explains herself to Eli, he finally says, you know, the Lord grant you the petition that you asked for. Go and be at peace. And so she takes that as being the word of God. (laughs) And yet Eli and his two sons are not very good, especially his two sons. And Eli was a man who permitted his sons to do all kinds of heinous things there in the tabernacle when the children of Israel wanted to worship. And yet she knew all of this. I'm sure she learned that, you know, that these guys aren't really doing the right thing. And yet, when God spoke, or when Eli spoke, she kind of took that and said, you know what? I believe that God's going to do that. And he did. And so she brings this child after she weans him. She has three or four years of weaning Samuel. And can you imagine how special and intimate and wonderful those three years were, those three or four years? She knows what she's going to do. She's going to give him back to the Lord. He's going to go. He's going to go to the Shiloh at the tabernacle, and he's going to serve because he's actually a Levite himself. Elkanah and his wife were both Levites. Now you got this young Samuel who's going to serve the Lord for the rest of his life. He's going to serve with Eli, and he's going to serve with Hophni and Phinehas. These two really bad examples, and yet the nation of Israel needed Samuel at that time in their history. They needed a man who was after God's own heart. He's like a David in a sense. He didn't want to compromise anything. A man of sterling character and reputation. And so, the Lord gives Hannah Samuel. And after the time of weaning, she takes him up to the the tabernacle there in Shiloh, leaving Ramah, going to Shiloh, and she follows through on her vow. And immediately after that, we read what we read in chapter 2. Let's read just the first 11 verses, because that's probably all we're going to get through tonight. Let's read it. So after all of this happens, you know, and then she tells, as she comes and she brings Samuel back to the tabernacle, there's Eli again, and he's sitting there in the place that he's always sat. There's probably an indentation of the place where he sat, because the Bible says that he was a very heavy man. <laughs> so I'm trying to lighten that up a little bit, but you guys didn't get it, but that's all right. So a very heavy man. So he's sitting there. He sees her coming, and then finally she says, oh, by the way, I'm the woman, remember? The woman who with the sorrowful heart who prayed to the Lord for a child. And you, you told me that God was going to you know, work this out in a sense and to go, and, and the Lord answered. And here I am with the child. He's weaned, and by the way, He's yours, because that was the vow that I made. And I'm so glad that he was already weaned. Can you imagine these three gentlemen? I mean, who knows however many else were serving there in the, in the tabernacle, but here's a five-year-old boy. See ya. <laughs> That's quite a load. But I wonder what God did in Samuel. He probably made him a very respectful young man, and as he looked up to Eli and he looked up to Hophni and Phinehas, he didn't know any better at that age, and he's just like, you know, whatever he was gleaning from them, you know, um, for good or ill, and God speaking to him, God using him. And can you imagine the faith that it took for Hannah to give her son away, knowing that these guys are corrupt as anything? Would you do that, Mom? Would you do that, Dad? Because it was Elkanah's decision, too. Actually, it became his vow as well, because when the Lord, uh, when she made that vow, Elkanah, we know, 
was aware of that vow, and he didn't forbid it. So it became his vow, too. It wasn't just her vow. It became their vow. You'll notice in the first chapter it says that he went to Shiloh to fulfill his vow. But he told Hannah, only the Lord perform his word so that when the child is weaned, we got to do what is right, what we vowed to do, and he does. But think of the faith it took for her to give up Samuel, having three years of that intimacy with her newborn that she wanted more than anything. I tell you, that's worship, folks. That's real worship. When you have something you've asked for, and it's the only thing you've ever wanted. And God didn't require the vow of her. She made it voluntarily, but God held her accountable for that. And I think for good reason, too, because guess what? God was going to bless her with three other sons and two other daughters after Samuel. And the nation needed a man like Samuel. They didn't know it. They didn't even care. But God put his man in the right place at the right time. And so, what a worship service that must have been. It it just brings tears to my eyes when I think about it. Because I think of what it was like when my daughter was young and seeing my wife nurse her in the wee hours of the morning waking up, whenever I did wake up, that is. Seeing her there in the, in, the, in the rocking chair nursing my daughter, our daughter. And the stillness of those nights, and just a little lamp on, you know, it's just, and she's looking down at her. And Hannah did that with Samuel. Really special time. So let's read just the first 11 verses. I think that's all we're going to get through. It says, and Hannah prayed, and, and this is after she had told Eli, here he is. This is the result of my prayer, the result of what you said, Eli. Here it is. I made the vow. And so she afterwards prayed. She says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. And for no one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills, and he makes alive. He brings down to the grave, and he brings up. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah. But the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. And of course that is in Shiloh. Let's go back to verse 1 again. You'll notice the very two verse, first verses of this 
is really wonderful. In fact, if you look at just the first two verses, it really speaks of worship. You hear Hannah here just pouring out worship. And if you notice the hallmarks of worship, because it's all directed toward the Lord, it ascribes greatness to him. It talks about how wonderful and gracious he is, the things that he's done. It's nothing to do about me. And in these first two verses, we see that very thing. And Hannah prayed, and she said, and here's where her heart, her worship begins. My, actually, let me say this. Her worship already began. <laughs> because, at least in her prayer, she's worshiping. But, you know, what she did in giving her son back to the Lord, the thing that she desired and loved more than anything, that was the greatest worship. And then she follows it up. And notice, it wasn't just the action. Now she's going to pray and I love this. She said, my heart rejoices in the Lord. I, in other words, my heart rejoices in Jehovah. Whenever you see capital L-O-R-D, that is Yahweh, Jehovah. That is the covenant God, God the Father we're speaking of here, the one who cannot lie, who is perfect in every, everything that he does. He is glorified and perfect in holiness and love. And notice what she says, my horn, in other words, my strength, my strength is exalted in the Lord, and I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. And then she goes on in verse 2, continuing in worship, no one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. I love that. I love that because she's just giving him the glory. She's not, be, you know, before we start running to the Lord with our laundry list full of petitions and requests, it's good for us to acknowledge who we're speaking to. Have you ever noticed that? I've gotten in a habit of that sometimes. I, I just I rush into it. It's almost like I'm late for work. I run in. I'm putting away my umbrella, and I stick it in the little thing, and I'm like, okay, here we go. And I start blowing off my list. And I love what Hannah does here. And I think it's biblical, and I'll tell you why shortly. But sometimes we can become so familiar with the Lord, or at least we think we can become so familiar with him. We kind of bring him down to our level and we get this comfortability with him and, and we think that we understand more than we perhaps do. But we, we, we can become so familiar that we can be even at times contemptuous as we rush in with our needs before acknowledging him and who he is. Because we have to remember that we're not speaking and praying to an equal or to a peer of ours. We're speaking to Almighty God, the one who created all things, the heavens and everything in them. Things that we can't even understand. Things that are beyond our comprehension. He's created all these things in a thought. He's spoken them in a word and they came to pass when as yet there was nothing. Is there anybody who can do that? There is no one in the universe like our God. And he is the one who is indwelling you by his spirit. We need to return, I think, sometimes to, and, and many of you may have this healthy attitude toward the Lord, but you know what? Have a healthy respect for him, an awe, a reverence. The Bible sometimes calls it a fear, but you can fear and be a scared of, or you can fear and be in awe, in complete awe. You know, I think when Hannah is, is saying this prayer, there's no reservation in her voice. <laughs> Could it sound something like this? My heart rejoices in the Lord. And then she goes on and she speaks like that. Have you ever seen somebody just abandoned? They're not even concerned about their volume. They're just like, Lord, you have done this. I am so blessed. Thank you, God. 
I think that's how it was. And that's a good thing. But to know who we're speaking with. You remember in Matthew's gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, in chapter 6, verse 5 through 9, what did it say? Jesus, speaking to them about prayer, he says, When you pray, you should not be like the hypocrites, for they like to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things that you have need before you ask them. And therefore, he says, in this manner, therefore, pray. And what's the very first thing that he says? Pray. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What is that? Before he goes on to, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be our name, you know, you know, your name. Forgive us our, you know, give us this daily, our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those. And we go on through that list of things. But the first thing, the preeminent thing is worship. What is it? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And that's the way Hannah starts out. She doesn't forget who she's speaking to. She remembers that, God, you are... Even though you are closer to us than a brother, even though you love us like a father and a son, or you know, like a father and a, a, a child, we can have that relationship with him. But let us never forget how great he is and the great gulf that's between us that only Christ could unite us together. But we need to come before him going, Lord, without you, I would be nothing. The fact that you would you know, love me and condescend to me only because of the merits of Christ on the cross. It's good to have reverence for the Lord. I think that honors him. That way it keeps us from going in in a contemptuous way and just saying, hey, hey, bro, uh, just want to thank you. you know, and we can be kind of flippant, and you hear people pray like that. And, you know, God can hear them. I don't want to lay some kind of weird trip on people. But you understand what I'm saying? There's a, there's a reverence. We ought to be reverent to the Lord. I hear some people, even Christians, say, yeah, I talked to the man upstairs today. Did you? <laughs> what did he say? <laughs> you know? But notice, Hannah goes on and she says, my, my horn or my strength is exalted in the Lord. And my heart rejoices in the Lord. What does your heart rejoice in? What does it rejoice in? It's a good rhetorical question to ask yourself. What do I really rejoice in? Do I rejoice in my 401k? Do I rejoice the fact that all the bills are paid? Those are all good things. What do I rejoice in? Do I rejoice in the salvation of others? Do I rejoice in the fact that somebody else is being encouraged and they're getting out of debt? Maybe they're getting out of some kind of sin issue. Do I rejoice over that? I love what John the Apostle said in 2 John chapter 1. He says, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth. I love that. What was it that he rejoiced in? What did Hannah rejoice in? She said, I rejoice in the Lord. And John has a great example for us. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth. Paul the Apostle in 1 Thessalonians said to them, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? 
And then the Apostle John again in his third epistle says this, For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. I tell you what, there is no greater joy in my life than to see when my daughter finally gets something, when, I, when we share with her and it clicks. There's something that we've been telling her maybe for years, and all of a sudden it just clicks. Do you know that moment with your children or maybe even your grandchildren? When it finally clicks, they've heard the stories. I mean, they're not stories, but they've heard all the stuff. But isn't it true that the Lord, the Word of God is like that? That's what makes it alive. I've read the Bible a a number of times, and then to go through it again, and it's going to happen every single year as I go through it. I'm going to be blown away by what God reveals. And why didn't he show me that? 24 years ago, because I wasn't ready for that. Something's happening tomorrow in my life that I need to hear today. It's called fresh manna. It's called him daily loading us with benefits. He does that on purpose. His word is like that. It's ever living because we are ever changing. And all the time that we're changing, new facets of the word of God become real to us. And he reveals them to us at the right time, at the right moment. And all of a sudden, it just, the lights go on. I love that. That's why you never stop reading. Don't think, well, I've, you know, I've heard people say, well, I've, re- I've read the, from Genesis to Revelation, I've read it. They read it like a novel, and then they put it away. They haven't read anything. Maybe they have. You keep reading it, regardless of what happens. You keep reading it, and the Lord, in his right time, he's going to open things to you. And it may take some time. He's certainly speaking all the time, but there's going to be poignant verses that are going to step out to you. They're going to pop out to you at the right time, but it won't happen if you're not reading. He can do anything. He can speak to you in a dream. Got to be careful about that. He can speak to you through others if you're not listening to him. He can can raise somebody else and come to you and say, you know what, you're in trouble. (laughs) You know, and uh, so it behooves us to listen to the Lord. Listen to his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. But notice that she can smile at her enemies because her ultimate confidence is in the Lord himself. And this very reference, I believe, is a reference toward Penina, this one who vexed her often, just continually rubbed her nose. You can't have children. Oh, you poor thing. You're not even that attractive. Your husband probably doesn't even look at you in the right, you know, look at you with that sparkle in his eye anymore. But ah, me, on the other hand, I got everything happening for me. Got children lining up. Sorry, you don't have any. That's so sad. Oh. Vexing her. Vexing her. Making her cry. Making her not even want to eat. Have you been so distressed that you didn't even want to eat? In Psalm 37, what does it say? The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. And notice, the Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. In our modern vernacular, what comes around goes around. (laughs) One thing that the Lord doesn't like is when people abuse his church, when they say bad things about his beloved bride. If it's not repented of, they are going to have a hard day in the day of judgment. If they are against the church and they die and they go to hell, 
One day they will stand before they're thrown into the lake of fire at the end in Revelation chapter 20, the eternal destination of all the wicked dead. When they, before they are sent there, they are brought before the white throne. And can you imagine, the Lord is going to laugh at them. That's, that's, a part of the God, that's part of God that I don't, I never want, we will never have to see if you're born again. You'll never see that part of him. But there's coming a day for the wicked where he will laugh at them, for he sees that their day is coming. Because at that point, they've already made their decision. They've refused him, and they've spurned his offer of forgiveness and salvation right up to the moment. Then there is no hope for them. Do you understand? That's why now on this earth, the 70 or 80 years that we have is so important. I'm so glad that at least at 24 years of age, somehow, somehow, the miracle of God, he got through to me. But there are other people around me that, you know, older than I am, twice my age. Well, not twice my age. I make them 102 almost. That's not good. I don't think that. But people older than I am that don't know. I got to tell them. You have to tell them, right? Tell them the truth in love. In Psalm, in Psalm 2, verses 1 through 4, it says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth, they set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against Jehovah, and against his anointed. Remember that, because we're going to come back to that later. Saying this, Let us break their bands in pieces. Let us cast away their cords from us. We want to be independent. We're independent thinkers. We've evolved into this wonderful thing called humanism. We can do this all ourselves. We don't need you, God. I saw this one picture of a woman who was protesting in California recently. And she says, get God out of California. I got it on my phone. She's holding it. Get God out of California. And then another one had a, another gentleman had the satanic symbol on it, and the thing says, We will never bow. We will never bow. And then it had the Church of Satan on the emblem on it. And I thought to myself, One day you're going to bow. And you know, I don't say that with a heart of, of anger, because do you know, God loves that person. They're, they're, they're just taken captive completely. But God does not delight in the death of the wicked. It would be great if that man, and hopefully he will come to salvation, and that young woman, may, may both of them come to the Lord, pray for them. God doesn't need to know their names. You know the story. just happened not too long ago, just a few days ago. But he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. That's a part of God I never want to see. We've experienced his grace and we'll only see his love and grace. Why? Because he did the unthinkable. He took the punishment that you and I deserve upon himself on the cross. Therefore, there's no more judgment that is for you and I. That's the wonderful thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He took the punishment that we deserve. We'll never see that ever again. I can promise you that because the word of God tells us that. To me, that's very encouraging. But notice in verse 2, we sang it tonight. No one is holy like the Lord. No one is holy, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. He's holy. He's holy and pure in heart, in character, in motive. And holiness, what is it? It's separation. It's consecration. That's what the word means. It's separate. Separate from something. Separate to something. You and I are consecrated. We are holy to God 
because we have been set apart from the world and set apart unto God. Not set apart from the world and then just hanging out here in limbo. That would be even worse. (laughs) To be set apart from the world and then set there with nothing to do, twiddling our thumbs. What do I do now? No, we're set apart from the world. We're set apart unto Christ. Remember that. You are set apart. You are consecrated. What does the author of Hebrews say concerning Jesus Christ in Hebrews 7.26? For such a high priest was fitting for us, speaking of Christ, who is holy, harmless, undefiled. Isn't that wonderful? He is undefiled. He's perfect in every, every imagination, every character, every category, just 100%, He is a thousand million percent of every single one of the qualities that we waver on day to day. Even with the Spirit of God in us, I'm so inconsistent. Anybody can, can anybody feel the same way? I'm inconsistent. Even with the Spirit of God in me, I feel like I'm like, you know, there are times when the, the agape meter gets up maybe to 70, maybe 80. Maybe if I'm really die to myself, I'm pushing 80. And it's probably much lower than that, I'll be honest. I'm just full of myself. It's probably much less than that. But God says, I can use it. Because the only thing that's hindering is not my spirit. It's you, Rob. It's your old nature. You choose how much of me you want. Do you want all of me or do you want to be half-filled? If you want to be half-filled, I can work with that. It's not the best, but I'll start there. That's why it's important that we are emptied vessels that he can fill daily. Put off these things. Isn't that what Paul said to the Colossians? Put off these things. Fornication, anger, wrath, malice. There's a whole list of ugly things. But then he says, put on this. Put on Christ. Put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Put it on like a garment. Boy, I tell you, if I could think like that and and walk in that reality, everybody around me would be blessed. My wife and my daughter first, foremost. But I'm inconsistent. But he is holy. He's completely separate. And Isaiah, again, the Lord speaking in Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 6, what does he say? Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Who is that? Thus says the Lord, Jehovah, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Jesus Christ. That's who he's speaking of. The Lord of hosts. I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Wait a minute. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but yet they're one. That's what the Bible tells us, right? That's what we call the Trinity. There's three personages, but yet one God, and there's none beside me. Is God losing his mind, or is he saying that we're all one? One plus one plus one equals three, but one times one times one still equals one. One God, three persons, blessed Trinity. Notice, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Verse 7 of Isaiah 44. And who can proclaim as I do? I love this. God bragging about who he is. He can brag about himself because it's true. He's the only one who can. Notice, I love this. If this doesn't just get you, it just throttles my heart to hear this. Think of it. He says, who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show these things to them. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? He says, indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. And if God doesn't know of anyone, guess what? Nada. No other God. 
There's no one else in the universe who can match him for his glory and his love and his grace. Even Satan, whom the Mormons think that he's a half-brother of Jesus or something strange and aberrant like that, the Bible says that Satan is a created being. He's nowhere equal to God. He is not omnipotent. He is not omniscient. He is not omnipresent. There is only one being in the universe who holds all those three attributes so wonderfully, and that's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. No one else. One God. I love what it says in Isaiah 45. God speaking to Cyrus. Remember, he was the king of the the Medes and the Persians. A couple hundred years before he was born, Isaiah prophesied. God spoke to Isaiah and says, write this name down because he he hasn't even been born yet, not for another 150 or 200 years yet. But I want you, I got a message for him. Here's the message. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, Cyrus, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. He writes, and there's more to it, but he writes this letter to Cyrus way before he's born. How's that for prophecy? Is there any devil that can do that? Nope, because they're not omniscient. Only God is omniscient. They have a good handle on the past, but they cannot tell the future. And no one is holy, neither is there any rock like our God. I love that. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, it reads for us, it's called the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. And this is the, actually, I believe this is the first time in Scripture where the word rock is personified in a person. In a person. And this is what it says. The Song of Moses, he said, he is our rock He, God, he is our rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. And that word rock is where we get the the word sewer. That's what it is in in Hebrew, sewer. It is a rock, a boulder, a cliff, a mountain. Kind of reminds me of the dialogue that Jesus had with Peter. Remember that dialogue? In Matthew 16, it's recorded for us in verse 13 that Jesus came out of the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is right there on the border of Lebanon and Israel, which we visit this very place, Caesarea Philippi, when we go to Israel. It's a really interesting place. Jesus is standing there with his disciples, and he asked them, and he said, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Well, there's the answer, isn't it? (laughs) Have you thought about that? Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? The Son of Man. He gave him the answer. He asked the question, gave him the answer. Are you listening, guys? You know, that's what he's saying to his disciples. And notice, and so they said, "Ah, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one. That's literally what it is. When he says Christ, it means Mashiach, Messiah. Remember that. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the Christ. Those three terms are synonymous. Christ, anointed, and Messiah. They're all covered by the same Hebrew word, Messiah, or Messiah, or Mashiach. Jesus answered and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say unto you that you are Peter. In the Greek, you are Petros, the small little rock about that big around. You are Petros.
And on this rock, I will build my church. What was the rock that he's referring to? The truth that he just said. That he was the son. He was the Christ, the son of the living God. That is the rock on which Jesus will build his church. That fact alone, because that word rock is Petra. Petros is a small rock about that size. Petra, this rock that I will build my church upon, this monumental statement that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, that fact alone is huge. You take all the rocks in the world and you pile them up on one side of the earth as it tilters. That's the size of that rock. It's huge. A a cliff, a, a mountain range, a big, huge rock. That is what it is all about. It's all about Jesus. And then she goes on in verse 3, and she says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. You know, not only actions, but also our thoughts are weighed. Certainly our actions are weighed. Those are the obvious things that we do. People can see them, but also our thoughts. What did Jeremiah say in Jeremiah verse 4? O Jerusalem, wash your heart from wickedness, that you may be saved. How long shall your evil thoughts lodge within you? Held accountable for evil thoughts. In Matthew 15, verse 19, Jesus said, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. In the Psalms, in Psalm 139, one of my favorite Psalms, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You have seen, you know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. Are you kidding me? You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down, and you're acquainted with all my ways, for there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. He knows what you are going to speak tomorrow at noon. He knows exactly who you're going to be speaking to. He knows exactly the words you're going to choose. He could tell you right now if he so chose. Wouldn't that be a trip? Rob, you're going to be speaking to President Trump tomorrow. Face to face. (laughs) How's that going to happen? And then you wake up and you get a phone call. Probably a wrong phone call. President wants to meet you. Why? Who am I? Oh, we know you're nobody, but we want to get, you know, we want to get, we're going to have a representative from your area. We'll fly it. We'll come, you just go to the airport. We'll fly it out of D.C. and take an hour and a half to get there. And there you are. By noon, you're standing there in front of the president in the Oval Office. Nobody knows but God. He's the judge. He's the rewarder of those who work righteousness. And he's also the rewarder of those who work lawlessness. We will be rewarded as Christians, what we have done in the body since we've known Christ. And there are those who have died in rebellion and in their sin. They will stand before God and they will pay They will get a reward for their unrighteousness. And I can't imagine when the book is opened, it says in Revelation 20. And then there are other books that are open. The book of life is opened. And then there's there's other books written of the deeds that I've done. Can you imagine the horror of anyone standing? Because if you're standing there at that white throne judgment, you you already know what's going to happen. And somebody stands, an unbeliever, can you imagine that? And he opens a book and somehow he, I'm sure he can communicate everything to the mass of humanity that he resurrects to come to that place. And in one moment, he could reveal it all to them, and they would all know everything that's written in that book in an instant. And then he will say, depart from you, I never knew you. 
He is the judge. But notice, as we look at verses 4 through 9 below, we're going to see a, a comparison, a juxtaposition between those who think they are strong versus those who are weak, or those who are rich and those who are poor. We're going to see that as we go along, this difference between them that Hannah brings in this prayer. Notice what she says, the bows of the mighty are broken. So the mighty men, their bows are broken in half, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. There's your difference. The mighty man, his bows are broken, he can't do anything. And the one who is stumbled and is girded with strength, God is always for the underdog. I love that. He's always for those who don't appear to be anything to the world. In the world, the mantra is might makes right, but not so in the kingdom of God. You can have all the money you want. You can have all of the best toys. You can have all the best weapons as a country. And God looks at it and goes, it's nothing. We're going to see that in the future. I don't know when it's going to happen. We may be raptured before it happens. But in the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39, all the Arab nations, many of them are going to come against Israel. And they're going to launch everything they've got. And somehow God's going to go, "Mm, I'll just cause the short-circuiting of the wires while they're in flight. Oops. (laughs) Sorry about that. Your your uranium's dead. You got a virus in your computer system. That happens a lot. I love it. Can't do anything. If God wants to confuse a nation, boy, is he able. If he wants to confuse anybody, he is able. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. What does it say in Zechariah 4, verse 6, another great verse? Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. If you're, one, if you're a person who thinks might makes right, you got a, you got, we got a lot of learning to do. Because God can do a lot through very little. He's proven it over and over again. And those who, have, who were full, verse 5, have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. It's interesting to me that Hannah makes mention of even the barren has borne seven. Now, she only bore six. But a lot of times, the number seven is used as a means of completion or the, the, the very... Um, uh, it just speaks of, of completeness. Perhaps she's mentioning just the fullness of her desire that God has brought to her, even though she only had six children. Notice, and she who has many children has become feeble. Maybe as she grew older with Penina in the house, God is prospering now Hannah, and now Penina is starting to diminish. God has a way of equaling the scales. He always does. You may not be as gifted as somebody, but God has blessed you with something else. You may not be as beautiful as somebody else, but your family life is really great. But you're getting a lot of attention. Everybody, all the, all the guys like you. You know, if you're a female and you're gorgeous, all the men like you. But then there's someone who's maybe not as beautiful, but she's got a wonderful, fulfilled husband. A, a husband who loves her dearly and children who she's raising and doing well. The Lord has a way of just equalizing everything. All these gifts, talents, physical beauty, money. You know, just because people have these things, they have their own issues. Sometimes they're worse off than we are, and we're just, we got very little. And yet we idolize them, we look up to them, just like Penina and Hannah. God has a way of of balancing those scales over time. And he has the right. In verse 6, as the Lord kills and he makes alive, he brings down to the grave and brings up. He has a right to take a life or even allow it to happen. Have you ever wondered why a child would be stillborn? 
Have you ever wondered why David's son, when, the, when he sinned with Bathsheba, that very first son, who knows what a great king that child might have been. He may have been a great king. And yet, who is king after Solomon? His son Rehoboam, not a very good example. Could it have been? I wonder what that son originally might have been like. Could he have been really stellar? We'll never know. In Isaiah 55, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, so are my thoughts and your thoughts. In verse 7 in our text tonight, it says, The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he lifts up. In Psalm 75, it says, For exaltation neither comes from the east nor from the west nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. These things aren't up to us. Some of us are blessed with money. Some of us aren't. And people get mad because they don't have certain things. You know, Some people are wealthy because they worked really hard. Some people are wealthy because they got it by dishonest gain. Some people are wealthy because they were at the right place at the right time. And they were afforded opportunities that some other people didn't have. Should we get angry? Some people are poor because they haven't worked very hard. Some people are poor because they've worked hard and it just wasn't God's will for them to be exorbitantly rich. And maybe they weren't afforded the opportunities of somebody else. That's life, isn't it? Isn't that life? Sometimes being in the right place at the right time, and is, is all that working, is all that stuff, isn't that the stuff of God? I've known wealthy people. We've had some friends in our family that are very, they're millionaires. And they're the most down-to-earth people. And believe me, they're not hung up on money. And they're not like extravagantly, you know, just giving things away either. You know, many of them, these people that I'm thinking of, they don't know the Lord. Pray for them. But they're, they're, they're just average people. You'd never know that they were, they had that kind of money. But they, they're not hung up on it either. They can handle it. <laughs> Why would God give something, allow somebody to be really wealthy if he knew in their heart when they were born? It's like, I can't allow that person. Because of their makeup, because of where they're going to go, if I give them, if I allow an opportunity to come in their life, it's going to destroy them. God is wise. He knows what he's doing. I ought not to fret against it. I ought not to kick against it. I do the best I can, and I work hard like anybody else. And if God wants to prosper me, that's his business. If I work hard and nothing happens and the opportunities don't come, does that mean I, I pout and I yell at other people and I get jealous of them? No, I just continue doing what I'm doing. And I trust God in the middle of it, right? But not today. People are angry at anybody who's wealthy. And again, we don't know. Some have gotten it because they, by dishonest gains, some have worked really hard and done things right all their life. And God can, he can trust them with those things where somebody else he couldn't. Notice in verse 8 in our text, he raises the poor from the dust and he lifts up the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory for the pillars of the Lord of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. I love what it says in Psalm 37, the meek shall inherit the earth. The meek, not the weak, but the meek. Those who have great potential but are willingly submitting themselves to him, 
That is what meekness is. Meekness is having great ability, but purposely restraining yourself and submitting yourself to a higher authority in your life. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be a boss and a, uh, an employee-boss relationship. The employee may be smarter than the boss, but the, but the meek co-worker or the, the meek worker will say, you know what, I could run this company better than he can. But the right heart, the meek, will say, you know what, but I'm going to serve this company the best I can, and I'm not going to get in the way. I'm not going to speak behind his back. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength no man shall prevail. You know, God will always guard the feet of his saints. He will be with you even to the end of the age. Isn't that what he promised? When he gave that commission, the great commission, go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them, and I'll be with you to the very end of the age. Isn't that what he said? Notice in verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord. Now this is, uh, I would underline or circle verse 10 because this is a really pivotal, pivotal <laughs> verse in this prayer, because this verse by itself is so messianic in its nature. As we look at it, you'll see why. I've been dropping hints all along as we've gone along here. But notice, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. For heaven, he will, from, from heaven, he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Notice this. He will give strength to his king. Underline that. When Hannah was praying this, there was no king in Israel. There was no king. And notice, and exalt the horn of his anointed. This last verse, especially messianic in nature, as it speaks to the future judgment and a king who will sit upon the throne, the anointed one. That word anointed is Messiah, Mashiach. That's really what it is in the Hebrew. Before there was any king, Hannah here, it doesn't... Freak me out too much at all to think that she was prophesying here of a yet coming future king. And I think that's what's so wonderful about how God does things. Remember, we were in the book of Ruth. Ruth had no idea that she would give birth to King David and ultimately through King David's loins would come Jesus, the Messiah, the line of Judah the fulfiller of all the promises in the Old Testament, all the prophetic scriptures. And this is the first time in the Old Testament that speaks of a king and the anointed one together, and we know that it's prophetically referring to Jesus Christ. The word king is melech. That's literally what it means in the anointed. As I said, it's Mashiach or Mashiach. It's speaking of the Messiah. You remember in Daniel chapter 9, uh, verse 25, it says, um, as Daniel is receiving this prophecy, this incredible prophecy. In verse 25, it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, that's the same word here as anointed, Mashiach. Speaking of Jesus, turn with me to Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, I think that last verse, 
In fact, everything that Hannah has been praying right now, I, when I think of verse 10, you might want to write off on the margin of your Bible, Psalm 2. Read Psalm 2 and read verse uh, 10 again, and I think you'll see as she is praying just the underdog. And then we hear of this, from heaven he will thunder against them, the wicked. He will break them in pieces. He will judge the end of the earth. Notice what it says in Psalm 2. Let's just read the first few verses. Why do the heathen, why do the nations rage? And why do the people plot a vain thing, a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves. There's the word Melech again that we saw in verse 10 that you underlined. Melech or king. They set themselves. They made themselves they set their, their throne. They were unmovable, they thought. And the rulers take counsel together. What? Against the Lord? Against Jehovah? And guess what? And against his anointed. Again, there it is. Mashiach. Same exact word that we read here in verse 10. Anointed. It means the same thing. It's the same exact Hebrew word. Anointed. Anointed. And what is their response? Let us break their bands in pieces, cast away their cords from us. Notice, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord will hold them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath. And in distress, he will vex them in his deep displeasure. And he will say, yet, out of all the noise and all the restrictions and all of the fights and fusses and all of the election, <laughs> he's going to say, one day when he sets King Jesus on the throne in the millennial reign, he'll say, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And he says, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Isn't that what's, what it's going to be? We, he's going to inherit the nations. This, this Psalm 2 is so messianic. And you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Does that sound like verse 10 to you? Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. That's really good advice for everyone today, isn't it? It's really good advice for the world stage, for all the world rulers. Believe me. They will stand before Jesus Christ. He has given them a, uh, a power. He has lent it to them. It is on loan. The powers that be, what does it say in Romans 13? They're ordered. They're ordained by God. Every single person that you see in power right now is not by happenstance. It is there by God's design right. Even when our president became president in 2016, the world says, not going to happen. It'll never happen. It'll never happen. All the news agencies, never happen, never happen, can't happen, never happen. What? It happened. For such a time as this. Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. What a wonderful prayer. There's so much in that prayer. And I just want to have you turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 55. We're going to read this quickly. Um, it certainly deserves a lot more time than we've given it. But I want to just show you something that's kind of interesting. In Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 55, it is the prayer of Mary. We have often call it the Magnificat. It's also called the Canticle or the Song of Mary. It's when the angel... 
uh, Gabriel comes to her and he tells her, he visits her, this teenage girl, he tells her that the Messiah is going to be born through her, the, the joy of every Hebrew woman to, to know that, you know, back in, uh, what is it, in uh, Isaiah 7.14? What's the verse? Behold, the virgin shall conceive, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name, you know, you know Almighty God, Everlasting. And, that, and then it goes into Isaiah 9, verse 6, right? 6 and 7. So this song of Mary, she receives this, and as he, from hearing this visitation from this angelic being telling her that she is going to have the very Son of God, the Messiah, the Mashiach, Nagid, in her womb, and God, by the Holy Spirit, is going to plant that seed in her. Joseph had nothing to do with this. Nothing. That's why she was scorned whenever, when she came and says, can you imagine that showing up on your parents' door and saying, uh, I know I've got a baby bump here, but... The Lord did that. Oh, really? Uh-huh. I believe that. Never been done before. It's never happened before. And guess what? It's not ever going to happen again. It happened once. Once. But notice what Mary says. What does Mary say? My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Does this sound familiar to the prayer we just read with Hannah? For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. Therefore, behold, henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Does this sound familiar? He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. Does this sound familiar to you? He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Does that sound familiar? There's so many elements. I, I took the, the, the liberty and, and looked at this, and, and I thought to myself, I wonder what the differences are between these two things. And we'll just go through this really quickly. But if you want to write this down, you can, or I can send it to you if you want to see this later. This is just my opinion, okay? This is just something that the Lord showed me. It may be convoluted to you, but I think there's something interesting about this. Both of these prayers, the prayer of Hannah here in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and the prayer of Mary in Luke chapter 1, each of them are 10 verses long. And each of them start very similar. In fact, let me just give you something. And you can rewind the tape. You can look at it on the, uh, if you're fast enough to write it down, that's fine. Otherwise, you can rewind the video online. You can see it again or the podcast, whatever you want to do. You can overlook, you know, go over this again. But in Hannah's prayer in, in Samuel chapter 2, in verses 1 and 2, I kind of looked at that and correlated that with this prayer of Mary in Luke chapter 1 from 46 through 50. Back in Hannah, uh, Hannah's prayer, verse 3, corresponds to Mary's prayer in verse 51. Hannah's prayer in verse 4 can correlate to verse 52 of Mary's prayer. Hannah's prayer from verses 5 through 8 can correlate to Mary's prayer in verse 53. Hannah's prayer, verses 9 and 10, can correlate to Mary's prayer, verses 54 through 55. And what I thought I would do is read them side by side in that order for you, and you make up your mind. 
I think it's pretty interesting. We'll start off with Hannah's prayer, and then we'll read the verses that correspond to what I just shared with you. Listen to this. See if you see any similarities. It may be a forced a little bit, I'll admit to you. But I found it interesting because I think there's some elements of it that are very right on you. It's kind of spooky in a way. And I don't think it's really spooky in a sense because Mary, no doubt, knew this passage in Samuel. She had probably read it hundreds of times as a little girl hearing, having the Old Testament scriptures and reading this account of Samuel. No doubt she listened to that as a young girl thinking, wow, what a privilege to give birth to Samuel, one of the greatest prophets Israel ever had. And now here she is, she's even getting a greater blessing because she's going to be the one who is going to give birth to the Savior of the world. And I'm sure she's recollecting that prayer and and spontaneously out of her heart, led by the Spirit of God, she starts to think about Hannah's prayer and she starts to interject her own life into it. Let's read it. Hannah's prayer. We're going to look at, I said in verses uh, 1 and 2, it correlates to verses 46 through 50 in Mary's. And so let me just read those two right next to each other. So Hannah said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. And what did Mary say? In verses 46 through 50, you'll see some similarities. Just pure worship. What does she say? My soul magnifies the Lord, and my heart and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly estate of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed, for he who was mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Sound familiar? Back in Hannah's prayer, she says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. And we correlate that with Mary's prayer in verse 51 of Luke 1. And she says, Mary says, He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Verse 4, The bows of the mighty are broken, Mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. What did Mary say in verse 52? He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. Isn't that really what it was all about? Just juxtaposition, this comparison between the mighty and those who are nothing. And here Mary says the same same thing in verse 5. What what does Hannah say? Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. The hungry have ceased to hunger, for the barren was born seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust, and he lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the Lord are the, of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. What does Mary say in verse 53 of her prayer? He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. In verse 9 of Hannah's prayer, He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And then in verse 54 of Luke chapter 1, Mary says, He has helped his servant Israel in mercy, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, Abraham, and to his seed forever. And you just see so many similarities between the two of them, each of them ten verses. It just so happens to be in, in the English, works out to be ten. 
The pattern of it flows almost very similar. But notice that it started off with just praise and worship. And really that's where uh, it all begins, isn't it? You know, when Jesus gave us that model prayer, it wasn't by accident. He gave that to us to keep us focused. If you're like me, I need something to keep me focused. It's, it's a model prayer. So just something to think about. So um, why don't we stand together? And um, next week we'll get into, uh, we're going to meet the wicked sons of Eli, and we'll look at Samuel's childhood and the prophecy against Eli's household because they were so evil. So that'll be fun to get into, right? Everybody smile. <laughs> it's actually really good. And, um, but let's give thanks to the Lord. And Father, we come before you tonight, Lord, just so thankful, Lord, for this prayer of Hannah. And we thank you for Mary, Lord. We thank you for this woman who has been misunderstood and has been put on an altar, Lord, when she herself would never be put on an altar. She knew that you were God Almighty in the flesh. And yet church, churches and history organizations have put her on the same level as you. And yet you're the one who saved her. The one who bore her would save her. The one who bore you, Jesus, you would ultimately save her. And so, Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word and pray that you would um, open our hearts and, and just help us to worship you, Lord, as we look at Hannah's life and maybe feel a little convicted by her selflessness, by her sacrifice, Lord. And so, Lord, help us to, um, to worship you in all things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.